For another take on recent clinical trial results and the use of molecular targeted therapy of renal cell cancer, I met with Dr. Walter Stadler, who began our conversation by discussing the Avorin trial. This is phase three data confirming what many of us suspected previously, that Avastin is a good drug in this disease. And I think that the major question that this trial raises is what the role of interferon might be in the sense that the arm that won was a combination of interferon plus Avastin. Certainly in our practice, we try to enroll patients onto clinical trials, and I think that this supports some of our ongoing clinical trials in which we're using Avastin in combination. I think that many of us suspect that it's the Avastin that's playing the major role in providing the time-to-progression advantage, but I think there's a real question as to what role interferon might be playing. Do you think it's reasonable at this point, assuming you could get it paid for, to utilize bevacizumab in a single agent without interferon in clinical practice? I think it is reasonable whether the same results that were observed in the clinical trial will be seen with Avastin alone or bevacizumab alone, I think, remains something to be determined. What do we know about Avastin by itself in renal cell cancer? I think that the two trials that have been conducted with bevacizumab by itself are a randomized trial of bevacizumab versus a placebo in patients who had failed high-dose IL-2. It's a small randomized phase 2 trial conducted at the NCI that showed there was an improvement in time progression over placebo. And then there was the trial presented at last year's ASCO of bevacizumab with or without erlotinib that showed that there was no advantage to the addition of erlotinib, but that the time to progression in that population is similar to what was observed in the phase three trial just presented at this year's ASCO. What do we know about side effects and toxicity of bevacizumab specifically in patients with renal cell? The toxicities in patients with renal cell are similar to the toxicities in other tumor types. There is a small but real risk of bleeding. Most of the time that bleeding is clinically insignificant. There are rare and serious bowel perforations that occur. But I think that from a management standpoint, the biggest issue is the issue of the proteinuria and the hypertension I think that the proteinuria has typically been suggested not to be clinically significant, but I think I worry a little bit because many of these patients may be on the drug for long periods of time, a year or more. And likewise, with the hypertension, there is data from all the VEGF pathway-targeted agents that these drugs increase the risk of cardiovascular toxicities, including heart attacks and strokes. And I at least wonder whether better control of hypertension can help ameliorate those toxicities. Any relationship between hypertension and response? Probably not. Some of the work that we've done with other VEGF pathway-targeted agents at our institution suggests that hypertension is more of a pharmacodynamic rather than a predictive marker. It's much more like neutropenia seen with Taxol in the sense that it is a necessary but not necessarily sufficient condition.
Any thoughts about the mechanism of how the drug actually caused hypertension? Anything new with that? It's not clear exactly the mechanism, but it's important to remember that VEGF, which is what bevacizumab binds and inactivates, was originally described as vascular permeability factor. And so that essentially binding and inactivating the VEGF leads to less leaky vessels and presumably increases in vascular tone. There have been some suggestions that this occurs through the inducible nitric oxide synthase system, but I think that still needs to be proven. There's been a lot of debate about the mechanism of anti-tumor action of bevacizumab and other tumors, a question of whether or not it in some way is synergistic with chemotherapy, obviously the issue of the anti-angiogenic effect. What about specifically in renal cell cancer? What do we know or what's hypothesized about what the mechanism of anti-tumor action is? Kidney cancer is in some ways a little bit unique because if you look at expression profiling, it is the tumor that has one of the highest levels of VEGF, and this is directly related to the pathophysiology of this tumor, which is thought to be due to inactivation of the VHL pathway leading to upregulation of the HIF transcription factor, which then in turn leads to upregulation of VEGF. So upregulated VEGF is a part and parcel of the pathophysiology of renal cancer, and in some ways this has been known for a long period of time because this is a tumor that is highly angiogenic. So given these different pieces of data, there are pretty strong suggestions that there is a direct anti-angiogenic effect is the mechanism of action of bevacizumab in kidney cancer. What about VEGF on the tumor cells itself and the possibility of it having a direct effect on the tumor cells in renal cell? That's an interesting question. I mean, certainly VEGF is considered to be a secreted molecule that stimulates the growth, proliferation, and contributes to the survival of the endothelial cells in the stroma. But there is some data that there are VEGF receptors on tumor cells themselves. That data is a little bit controversial, and the function of those receptors on the tumor cells is not well understood. You mentioned the issue of bleeding, and I guess in terms of the other tumors, the non-small cell lung cancer has been the one that's been sort of the most problematic in terms of hemoptysis. What about the issue specifically of bleeding in renal cell? The biggest theoretical problem of bleeding in renal cancer is in patients who have a large primary tumor in place. And I think it's important to recognize that in the trials that have been conducted to date, the vast majority of patients who have been entered were patients who have had a prior nephrectomy. And the risk of bleeding in patients who have a large primary tumor in place is just simply therefore not known. Would you yourself have a hesitation about using BEV in a patient with a primary intact? If it's a large primary tumor, I would be nervous and certainly would watch that patient a little bit more closely. What's your general algorithm right now? I know, and we'll talk about some of the trials that you're working on, but assuming a patient's not eligible for a study, first line, second line, third line metastatic disease, how do you sort through that right now off study? For good prognosis patients, some of the most mature and best data frontline is really with the VEGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors and specifically with sunitinib. 
because that study was done frontline in good prognosis patients, and it was a single drug. And so that's probably would be my choice as first-line therapy. That's driven also in part by the fact that, at least as of today, bevacizumab has not yet received full regulatory approval for treatment. Thereafter, whether one then uses the alternative VEGFR inhibitors, since there's data that there are responses, or whether one uses bevacizumab, or whether one should use one of the mTOR inhibitors, and specifically temsorolimus, I think remains an open question. What do you tend to do second line? We have a tendency to enroll patients on you know, one of our trials, and there's two sort of classes of trials we're looking at. We're looking at the use of alternative VEGF receptor targeting agents, but also have a trial looking at combinations with bevacizumab. What specific combinations are you looking at? So one of the combinations that we're looking at is a combination with gemcitabine and capecitabine based on some earlier work that we've done both at our institution and through the CALGB, but there are some other trials that have been proposed as well. Can you talk about that study that looked at gem and capecitabine? So that was a trial we did a couple of years ago, and in that particular study, we saw about 10 to 15% of patients have an objective response, which was the primary endpoint, but it was not felt that that response rate was sufficient for moving the combination forward in a phase three setting. But now you're looking at that plus BEV. And we're looking at that plus BEV and seeing if we can get enough of a response in order to justify further larger trials. Any sort of preliminary observations? I think the preliminary observations are encouraging, but time will have to tell. You mentioned the issue about bevacizumab and regulatory approval. Assuming it were approved, ideally, how would you like to utilize it, and sort of where would it fit in the non-protocol algorithm? You know, assuming it gets regulatory approval, I think that using it in a frontline setting, especially in good prognosis patients, makes a lot of sense. And I guess my recommendation would be if one were to practice evidence-based medicine, one should do that in combination with interferon, because that's what the phase three data tells us. And is that sort of what you think you'd want to do in a clinical setting, assuming you had that leeway, or can maybe using BEV alone? I would probably try to use the combination. I think that the patients in whom this has been studied best are patients who are good prognosis, who can tolerate the doses of interferon that were used in this study. How would you compare quality of life, side effects, tolerability, et cetera, of using sunitinib or sunorafenib compared to bevacizumab monotherapy? You know, I think that the toxicities of sunitinib and serafinib are certainly broader than the toxicities of bevacizumab, at least in the sense that these tyrosine kinase inhibitors also give some skin and GI toxicities. In regards to which one is better or worse in regards to the patient, it depends a lot Certainly, there are patients who have more difficulty with some of these skin and bowel toxicities from the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, but many of the patients, certainly many of the patients that we have treated, have tolerated these treatments often for long periods of time. Can you talk about the adjuvant trial right now that's looking at sunitinib and serafinib? 
This is a ECOG-sponsored trial in patients who have high-risk cancer after surgery, no evidence of metastatic disease, and these patients are planned to be randomized to one year of placebo versus one year of serafinib versus one year of sunitinib, with time to recurrence or progression-free survival being the primary endpoint. There's also an opportunity to register patients prior to surgery in order to collect tumor specimens and look at potential molecular predictive markers. Now, how far out are patients who've been put on this trial? What's the longest anybody's been treated at this point? On the adjuvant trial? Yeah. So the adjuvant trial has been a little bit slow in accrual, and I'm not sure how far the longest patient is, but I'm sure it's less than a year. You have patients on that study yourself? I have patients on that study, and you know we have treated patients in the metastatic setting for up to a year quite successfully. But in this study, do you think that you can tell which are the patients getting active drug? So I think that there is a concern that these are not going to be truly blinded. And obviously, if a patient has significant skin or diarrheal toxicities, it's unlikely that that patient is on placebo. But one of the things that we've learned in conducting placebo-controlled trials is that our accuracy in predicting what the patient was on was actually much less than we thought it would be. That's interesting. Do you have patients where you go to yourself, well, I think this patient's on serafinib, or I think this patient's on sunitinib? Yeah, I mean, we've done that, and I've actually had debates with the nurse as to what we think that the patient is on, and we've not always agreed. That's interesting. What is it that would maybe make you think more that the patient's on sunitinib versus serafinib? Typically, sunitinib has been associated with somewhat more fatigue, and serafinib has been associated with more skin toxicities, and sometimes we use that, but you know, sometimes patients don't have these toxicities. Any predictions about what the trial is going to show? I wish I knew. If I knew, I wouldn't have to do the trial, but I'm hopeful that it'll show that one of these oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors will delay progression. You mentioned earlier in terms of first-line therapy of metastatic disease, the question of whether patients quote good risk or poor risk. Is that something that you actually consider clinically, practically in a non-protocol setting, specifically in terms of whether to use TEMPS or Alinus? I think so. I mean, there is at least suggestive data even prior to these trials that tumors that we clinically call poor risk have actually accumulated additional mutations that might make them more sensitive to mTOR inhibitors. And that is one of the reasons the clinical trial with Temsorolimus was limited to patients with poor prognosis. And, you know, there was also some suggestions, especially in the bevacizumab trial that the patients with poor prognosis did not benefit as much, although that's very limited data since there were so few patients with poor prognosis on that trial. So the data is not complete, but the data that we do have would suggest that a patient with poor prognosis features might be better served by the use of temsorolimus. What do we know about responses to therapy after temsorolimus? in these poor-risk tumors? We actually know very little, and in part, that has to do with the fact that the trial was limited to the poor prognosis patients who, if they progressed, were often too sick to enter any other clinical trials. How about responses to serafinib after sunitinib and vice versa in the good-risk patients? 
what we know now is that there are responses to patients who are, quote, resistant to one tyrosine kinase if one administers a second or a third tyrosine kinase. The difficulty with some of these observations is that one can see similar effects if one simply changes the dose of the first tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And I think it also depends a little bit on how one defines resistant. At least in our clinical practice, the patients who have done best with switching from one to the other or in terms of switching dose, those who have been on the first drug for a prolonged period of time and have apparently benefited from that. Can you talk a little bit more about the research supporting the increasing the dose? So it's at this point almost anecdotal. There are very few formal studies. There was an interesting study presented at ASCO by Dr. Amato with serafinib suggesting that higher doses would lead to higher response rates. But this was obviously a single institution, single-arm study that needs to be confirmed. In your own practice outside of protocol setting, have you tried or do you think you would ever in any certain circumstances actually try to increase the dose? We have done that. We've done that in patients who have tolerated the therapy well, who have little to no toxicities, certainly in patients who have had a initial response and then the tumor grows and anecdotally have had some restabilization or re-response. You mentioned about the issue of the good risk versus the poor risk patient. Can you kind of summarize what the key features are that would push you towards calling a patient a poor risk versus good risk? The clinical features for poor risk are simply performance status, disease burden, sometimes measured by LDH, but sometimes determined simply by the number of metastatic sites, more than three metastatic sites, and hypercalcemia are some of the biggest predictors of poor risk. I want to ask you about something else that might seem unrelated, but I want to kind of get your thoughts a little bit on the issue of clinical research and how to do trials, particularly looking at these biologic agents. And I'm curious what your thoughts were about the paper that was presented at ASCO looking at serafinib and hepatocellular carcinoma, and specifically the fact that there wasn't that much seen phase two, and yet when they did this phase three study, they saw such dramatic results. What was your take about that? Well, I think that the biggest problem we face in oncology in regards to phase two trials is our over-dependence on objective or, quote, resist-based response rates as the endpoint. Certainly, there are drugs like serafinib and probably bevacizumab whose major mechanism of action when used by themselves are slowing of disease progression. And in a single-arm uncontrolled trial, trying to determine whether lack of growth is due to or despite the drug that's being administered is essentially impossible. And therefore, the only way to determine that is in a randomized setting. And I think that as we develop some of the drugs and as we try to develop these combinations, the most important thing that we have to do is even in the phase two setting is to conduct randomized trials. Now, you've also published on the issue or the idea of the, quote, randomized discontinuation trial. Can you kind of explain what that is and why that type of study is sort of considered 
the randomized discontinuation trial was one randomized phase two design that we proposed to look at the disease-stabilizing activity of a drug in the phase two setting. And with this design, all patients get the drug up front. If there are clear objective responses, patients are presumably benefiting and they would continue on the drug. Those that don't tolerate the drug or who have progressive disease after a period of time are then taken off protocol. And those remaining patients who maintain stable disease for some specified time are then randomized to continuing or discontinuing the drug and in that manner determining whether the lack of disease progression is because of or despite of the administered drug. In my mind, the biggest advantage of this particular trial design is that it's a selection design that lets the drug select the patient population most likely to benefit and then determines in a randomized fashion whether that selection was actually a true drug-related selection or a drug-unrelated selection. And to what extent has this actually been implemented? It's been implemented with serafinib and the other VEGFR-targeted drug, bazopinib, from Glaxo Welcome was also studied in a randomized discontinuation trial design. Interestingly, in that latter study, which was also presented at ASCO, there were so many objective responses that there was no need to go on to the randomized portion. What about the serafinib study? The serafinib study demonstrated the power of this particular design because in the serafinib study, there were very few objective responses and in many ways, the drug would have been rejected if we would have been completely dependent on verifiable resist-based responses. What are some of the other clinical trial concepts? You mentioned combinations of biologics. What are some of the combinations that are being looked at? There's been a lot of interest in combining VEGF pathway-targeted agents, either the tyrosine kinases or bevacizumab with the mTOR inhibitors. And there's not only temsorolimus that's out there, but there's also the parent compound serolimus or rapamycin and RAD001 or everolimus. I think there's a lot of interest in combining these classes of agents because they work on different but related pathways. What about combining one or the TKIs with bevacizumab? What do we know about that and to what extent is that being looked at? That's being looked at as well, and there is a upfront trial that has now been initiated looking at sunitinib versus sunitinib plus bevacizumab, and the ECOG cooperative group is launching a randomized phase two trial with multiple combinations that include bevacizumab as well as both the serafinib as well as the mTOR inhibitor temsorolimus. So those combinations are also being investigated. Any toxicity concerns with any of these combinations, particularly when you, you know, sort of hit the vertical blocking of the same pathway two different places? I think that there's little doubt when you combine drugs, you get increased toxicities. And I think that the biggest question that's out there is whether these combinations will prove to be any better than simply using the drugs in sequence because we know that the combinations will increase toxicities. In the phase one studies, certainly the combinations with avastin and the tyrosine kinase inhibitors 
have led to greater degree of toxicity of all the you know known toxicities of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Can you talk a little bit about how the mTOR inhibitors actually work? The mTOR inhibitors are mechanistically somewhat complex. They're all related to the natural product cyclic peptide serolimus, which binds to a binding protein called FK228, which then binds to mTOR, which stands for the mammalian target of rapamycin, and inhibits this important protein in its biochemical activities. And the biochemical activities of mTOR are rather pleiotropic, but are all related to the cell's ability to sense its nutrient environment. I'm sure you see a lot of second or third opinions of patients who are being managed by medical oncologists in clinical practice. Are there any practice trends that you see out there that, you know, maybe you disagree with a little bit or confusion or myths, et cetera, that you see about managing renal cell in clinical practice? I think that the biggest issues that are emerging are the ability for practicing physicians to become comfortable and used to the toxicities that we see with these VEGF pathway targeted agents. Certainly, I think that there's a tendency to stop some of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors early at the first sign of toxicity, despite the fact that these toxicities can often be managed and actually get better over time as the patient stays on study. And I think that the second major issue, at least in my mind, is not insufficient attention to the hypertensive toxicities of these agents. What would be your bar to start treating hypertension, systolic, diastolic, in a patient with metastatic disease? I actually have a relatively low bar, and any patient that has blood pressure over 140, over 90, we treat. You talked about the issue of management of side effects of these agents. Any sort of pearls or clinical experiences that you have of management practices that are particularly helpful? The skin toxicities seen, especially with serafinib and somewhat with sunitinib, have been managed most effectively with urea-based creams and emollients that patients often find to be very helpful. Although we haven't studied it systematically, we have found the calcium channel blockers to be relatively effective in the hypertensive issues with these agents. What about fatigue? Fatigue is a little bit more difficult, certainly with sunitinib, There have been reports of hypothyroidism, and I think one has to monitor the thyroid function tests. One often does have to get more full thyroid function analyses rather than just the TSH because many of the patients have a sick euthyroid syndrome and not true hypothyroidism. Management of fatigue in patients who do not have hypothyroidism is somewhat more difficult. I usually encourage patients to maintain activity, to be more active, and then to take extra naps in the afternoon. Usually that works, and like the skin toxicities, much of the fatigue tends to improve a little bit over time. What are some of the common questions that you receive from oncologists in practice about renal cell? I think some of the common questions we receive are, you know, what are the combinations that you're studying? Are combinations going to be more effective? Which one of these drugs would you use first? How do we manage the toxicities? Really many of the same questions that you asked. 
How do you think we're going to be treating renal cell cancer three to five years from now? I'm hopeful that three to five years from now that we will have data on some of our combination trials that will allow us to test whether a combination is truly better than sequential therapies. I'm a little bit concerned that with four classes of drugs and multiple combinations that patients will simply get these drugs without enrollment in clinical trials and that we may not have those answers. I'm going to guess that you think that at this point to try to combine any of these agents outside a protocol setting would not be advisable. I don't think that's advisable because certainly the studies that have been done so far suggest increased toxicities and no complete responses, and that leaves open the question as to whether the combination truly is better than doing it sequentially. Any new agents or new treatment strategies that are coming down the pike that you're excited about? There's lots of different targets that are being investigated, so certainly the MET or MET pathway is a potential target, and there's a number of drugs in that pathway that are being looked at. I think that there's been a lot of interest in inhibitors of the AKT pathway. And on the immunotherapy front, certainly I think there's been a lot of interest in the anti-CTLA-4 antibodies. What about the non-clear cell renal cell cancers, papillary, et cetera? How do you approach those? There was at least some data presented at ASCO suggesting that the papillary and chromophobe tumors do respond to VEGF pathway-targeted agents, specifically both serafinib and sunitinib. The difficulty here is that there is incomplete pathologic expertise at a lot of institutions for distinguishing these different histological subtypes. But certainly for institutions where there is comfort, I think that use of these tyrosine kinase inhibitors is rational based on at least the limited data that we have. For things like the even more rare collecting duct and medullary carcinomas, there's at least some expression data suggesting that these tumors are more closely related to urothelial carcinomas and at least case reports that they occasionally respond to chemotherapy.